I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have here with me uh, here with me today, Dr. Tema Oken, who is one of the authors of the Symptoms of White Supremacy Culture paper. I don't even know. Do you call it a paper? It's a yeah. I mean, it's like the biggest. It's it's for me a huge, huge life changing document in my own journey. I see it used in so many other wonderful spaces, and it's the framework for the conscious anti racism curriculum that I created, co-created with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, and, and it's centered in our book. Uh, and I'm just really, really so jazzed to uh, have you here uh, with me today, uh, Tema. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. My pleasure. I'd like to start with a question I ask of my guests is, what does anti-racism mean to you? And I know that term can be sort of, people have opinions about the term, so please feel free to comment on that as well. Well, it means, I mean, literally, it means to be against racism. Um, and I, you know, I am, I am, years ago, I took a workshop with this wonderful man named Bert Freeman, who taught this technique called verbal positive, verbal positive approach. And his suggestion was that we're more powerful when we talk about what we're for than what we're against. And that has really influenced my thinking a lot. And it influences the way when I'm, when I teach how I, how I get feedback and how I grade and when I'm mentoring, same thing. So um, I, I refer to myself less and less as anti-racist and more and more as someone who is living into a racial justice commitment or a racial equity commitment. Okay. And I think, it's a, I think it's a strong word. I mean, racism sucks. And so being against it makes sense. And being an anti-racist means that we're living into a commitment to fight racism is the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And it's, it's it, I think before, in my perspective, my limited perspective, before May of 2020, no one really knew what anti-racism was or meant. And so having that as a, describing what I do as that, or, or my curriculum or course as that, people were confused. And now people know what it means, and now I've gotten more understanding. And, and, I, and I considered, you know, do I change the name so people understand it better? Um, and, and decided ultimately to keep with it, because that's the term that's that's often used, and as I've dived more into the space, I hear, and I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I saying what you're against doesn't say what you're for. Um, so it's it's as you're saying a powerful word, but also nice to think of things maybe from a different perspective as well. Can you can you talk about the symptoms of white supremacy culture in terms of how how you came up with them? I know you work with Kenneth Jones, and I know he's from what I understand, he's your mentor. I don't know if he worked with him directly on this project or if he was your mentor, more big picture, but it's so brilliant to think of it as symptoms of this illness, um, of this underlying disease. I'm a, I'm a doctor, so I have, you know, that really resonates with me. How did you come up with that framework and how did, how did they come together? How did you actually figure out what they are? Um, so that's a good question. And, and what I'll say is that at the time, 
I, Kenneth and I had been training partners and teaching partners for probably, um, trying to do the timing, three, four, five years. And so he, we, and we came together because he was doing anti-racist, uh, racial equity, racial justice training through the Peace Development Fund in the Northeast. And I was doing the same in the Southeast. And we, we sort of joined forces and we created a group together called Change Work and started doing work nationally together. So he was my training partner and my mentor. And he was, he was my senior and more experienced and wiser. So uh, we, we developed this, we merged our curriculums. We, we had a way of thinking about teaching about what white supremacy and racism are. Uh, we had a scaffolding. A lot of that is, a lot of what we created together and learned together is outlined in my book, which is called The Emperor Has No Clothes, teaching about race and racism to people who don't want to know. So I was very grounded in the work that we'd been doing together. And I was living in San Francisco for a year, and he and I were doing a lot of work on the West Coast. And what happened was that I, so I've been thinking about this a lot. I went to a People's Institute training on the West Coast that was led by Ron Chisholm and Daniel Buford, and I can't remember who the white trainer was. And I'd been to many of their trainings, and I like to go to their, their trainings. The People's Institute, if people don't know, is I consider sort of the grandparent of contemporary racial, racial justice, racial equity training. They had been working out of New Orleans doing their curriculum for many, many years and uh, very generous people, very wise people. So I'd gone to their training and I was, so I was feeling both grounded in the work that Kenneth and I were doing, grounded in the, in the wisdom of their training. And then I'd gone to a meeting that had been completely frustrating. And I came home and uh, literally it wrote itself. I did not this was not a research piece. This was not, this was a piece that came through spirit through me onto the computer. And um, when I wrote it, I showed it to, to Kenneth and he, he gave his feedback. And then I also showed it, the reason it has antidotes is because I showed it to Sharon Martinez, who leads, was leading at the time the Challenging White Supremacy Workshop Series in the Bay Area. And she said, you have to have, you can't just say what's wrong. You can't just talk about the characteristics. You have to talk about what to do about it. And so she's responsible for the antidotes, which I did sort of sit down and think about, think through more carefully than what came through me onto the page. So I do feel like um, I need to say that, that I, I don't feel like, I, I'm really clear it's not a researched article. I don't, I don't say that with apology. I just say that it's a different kind of knowing that came through, through me, not from me. And, and later as I, when I, so there are versions going around with just my name on it and versions with Kenneth's name on it. And when I first published it, I published it with Kenneth's name because I feel like everything I know is a result of being in partnership with him. And he got really angry with me. He said, I don't want my name on there. You know, I, I didn't write it. You wrote it. Take my name on there. So um, he always won the arguments. So I, at that point, I took my name off. And fortunately enough, pieces were out there with both our names on them. So I'm very happy when versions are still going around with his name on it too, because he is, in fact, I mean, he may not have helped to write it, but he certainly informed whatever was coming through me was coming through me because of my relationship with him. Yeah, that's so powerful. I had, I'm so, it's so lovely to hear the the origin story. And I, honestly, I think that's probably why it connects with so many people, because I've seen it used in trainings, not just for white people. I mean, the first one I was at the um, Allies in Action retreat led by Leslie Mack and Paige Ingram uh, about two years ago. 
that's where I was first exposed. But um, in Michelle Johnson's, I'm, I'm doing her race and resilience training right now. And that was one of the articles uh, for this month, for the, the meeting we had last night was was your article. And, and that's for a mixed group. And for anyone who doesn't know her, Michelle Johnson is an incredible social justice race educator she, and, and so much more. Um, I, that's not even doing justice to what and I assume you know she and I were training partners for many years too. Yeah, so so then the, the circle gets even bigger because because I put her a quote from a training I did with her back in November at the very beginning of the Conscious Anti-Racism book about the work is difficult, but we need to do it anyway, and we need to do it anyway. And then I was listening to her podcast and then hear that you're a guest on her podcast and that whole episode, and that was after I'd already reached out to you and I had you'd have been, been in touch uh, when I was writing, uh, creating the curriculum to begin with. So it's, it's so incredible how that has all worked together and then hearing the conversation between the two of you, um, I'll link to that, that, um, that podcast episode um, because it's really lovely to hear, hear the relationship between the two of you and that mutual respect. Um, so it just kind of came through you and, and yeah, so that's, I feel like that's why people relate. It doesn't feel right. It feels universal. It feels relatable for everybody. And and in the trainings that I do, and I'm sure you've had this experience a million times over, the the black people who who are present, I, I don't train by myself. I, I have a partner, but they're like, that's the name for what I go through, and that it feels so validating, and it feels so um, like there's a word for it. There's it's it's a it's it's acknowledging what has been happening for so long, even if they haven't been reading articles about it. They don't have to because they live it. So, um, so that's really powerful. I will say there's been a range of responses to it. I also want to say before I forget that, um, that in a couple of months, I hope to launch a website about it with where it's revised, it's updated, uh, other people are contributing to it. So oh, good. we'll look out for that. I'll let you know Great. Uh, because it was written a long time ago. It was written 20 years ago. And it needs a class lens. It needs some additions. It needs some revisions. It needs more storytelling and examples. So, mm -hmm. and then a lot of people have taken it and done really creative things with it. So there's going to be a whole page with all the different ways that people have made it their own. I, I will say that there there've been some some people have read it as a as a critique as if I'm saying some people interpret that what I'm saying is that black people or people of color can't achieve excellence. So there, there have been some actually angry posts about, uh, about what I'm saying. So again, in the website, I'm trying to make it clear that while I understand people receive it that way, I'm trying to be clear that I don't, I'm not in any way saying that worship of the written word or uh, perfectionism means that there are standards out there that people of color can't achieve. I, I'm trying to say that, or BIPOC people can't achieve. I, I'm trying to say that perfectionism is not a, a quality that any of us should want to achieve. That mm. There is not really any such thing as perfectionism. And that there's a difference between excellence and perfectionism. And excellence is something that we get to determine. And the evidence of the excellence of BIPOC people and communities is everywhere. So I'm certainly not saying that, saying that. So sometimes I do have to clarify that. Sure, absolutely. And I guess if you're going to put something out there, there's always ways to, to interpret it. Um, through, through one's own lens. And um, it's, it's, I'm sure not, maybe I can't speak for you, I guess, but maybe not pleasant to hear that, but also like an opportunity to learn and, and. Well, it also gets weaponized. So 
you know, and people use it as a weapon against each other. So there's a, there's the way in which we can offer each other what I would call content or a way of thinking about something. And then there's what we do with it. And I remember early on in the early years of working with Kenneth, where we would, you know, spend quite a bit of time working with people trying to ground them in analysis of how uh, white supremacy and racism operate in the belief, which I still believe that we need common understanding and language if we're going to do something about about it yeah. and how and then people would take what the analysis that we would give them and use it to beat each other up you know i'm more woke than you are i have a better analysis than you do your analysis and and i would witness that and kenneth would witness that that and you know we would talk about it and and try and and build a culture in the way that we teach where we were encouraging people to hold each other which can include being in conflict with each other but without going out, without going after each other, yeah. which I think is what white supremacy culture loves us to do. So exactly, yeah, yeah. It's so it's very um, it's meta in that way. And and the the training that I just did this morning, the the woman who hired us is a black woman, and it's for her board. And she was saying, "Oh my gosh, I see these symptoms in myself. The way I lead, and it's this active." You have to, it's so insidious that we have to take active measures not to create a business environment, no matter what our race or background is, that brings that in, uh, brings these symptoms in and, and has them, I don't know, controlling us, I guess. I don't know what, what word you would use. Well, um, one, of, one of the stories in the book is how my, another colleague of mine, Bree Carlson, and I were doing a workshop for the National Lawyers Guild, which is a professional lawyers association. This was a long time ago too, over 10 years ago, maybe longer. And we were working with the characteristics and we had people in small groups and, and asked people to report back. And one small group reported back and said, well, these are, these characteristics are basically, are basically the requirements for being a lawyer. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and, and we've been talking a lot, or when I talk, talk about professionalism, which is a term I absolutely hate, and a term I'm very eager to critique because I think professionalism is pretty much a reflection of these characteristics, this idea that we cut ourselves off from our humanity in order to appear in a way that uh, demonstrates some level of credibility that actually has nothing to do with our creativity and, 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 is, and generally is used as a weapon against Black, Indigenous, and people of color about how they show up and how they need to show up. It's an assimilation project, basically. Mm. Is um, at just like white supremacy culture is an assimilation project, and assimilation requires people to shave off piece, pieces of themselves. So, yeah, an assimilation project. I love that. Um, that shaving off pieces of yourself. That that reminds me of the the interview I did with Ruby Sales, which I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it or not, but she talks about the soul death. And, and we lose pieces of ourselves to fit into this whiteness and then are left with nothing. Yeah. And then we cling to that um, for survival. I... The first time I heard her speak uh, was at a Methodist conference and she was the keynote speaker. And she talked about how she didn't think whiteness was a privilege. She thought it was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. was like, oh. No, I was just, whoa. Yeah. And that the, she just, in that one sentence, really shifted my thinking really, really deeply. I yeah, I feel like every sentence she says is sort of like that. And you can't, you can't multitask when you're listening to Ruby speak. It's not possible. Um, 
yeah. And she's like, why are you associating with being white? And I was like, I didn't think I had a choice. I thought I, <laughs> it was just, it was so, it was very interesting. Um, speaking of white, you were white passing. I am white passing. I would love to know what it's like for you. And you get into this a little bit in your interview or quite a bit within your interview with Michelle on, on her podcast, but what's it, what's it like for you um, being a white woman in this space and what are some of the like the obstacles you've had to overcome and what are the ways you check yourself and um and keep yourself tuned in to the work that you're doing and the, the people that you're joining as you do the work right well i always always try and make sure when in a work environment that i'm partnered with someone um wonderful and brilliant and genius. And I, I've been lucky because I always have been partnered. So Kenneth passed in 2004 and Michelle was already part of the collaborative at that time. And she and I worked together and I have um, a number of other partners that I work with. And so I, I do everything I can to partner with people who I know will um, partner with me with integrity, honest, honesty, authenticity, will uh, hold my feet to the fire without uh, being expect without me expecting them to do that. I mean, there's a, that we can hold each other, hold each other, call each other in. So that's, that's a big part of it. And then I also um, am very, very lucky, very, very lucky to be in a beloved community of a racially diverse community of people who I trust deeply and who, again, hold my feet to the fire. And when I say that, it's, you know, that keeps my feet warm, which is, I, I think that's a good thing. And, and I, and I feel like I like it. I like to live in a culture where I know that people are going to speak their truth to me. And I think one of the things that I have learned over time is that even if somebody offers me something that's hard to hear and I, almost always my initial conditioned reaction is to be defensive and to go, eh, to feel shamed, to defend against it, to say, that's not, you're not, you're not receiving me correctly. Some kind of defensive response. Um, but I'm old enough and I've been doing this work long enough that I know that's my first conditioned response. And in, in the best case scenarios, I can take a breath and in the next five minutes or the next five days or the next five months, I can, really dig into, okay, what's the offering there? Knowing that if the person, whether it's a white person or a person of color, if the person hadn't said anything, what they would have done internally is rolled their eyes and gone, it's not worth it and, and walked on by. And I would, the idea that that would happen is so much more painful to me than the pain of hearing what it is that somebody has to say. Now, having said that, almost all the people that I'm in a relationship with don't come after me. They don't come after, we don't come after each other. We, we are pretty committed to a, a culture of support, even if we have to say hard things to each other. So it's practice, like we practice that. Mm. Because white supremacy, white supremacy doesn't teach us how to do that very well. And in some ways, movement culture, and again, I'm old enough to have come up through a pretty harsh movement culture where it was all about proving yourself and, and show, you know, show a lot of performance and showing that you were more you're a better white person than the next person. And, and there was a lot of harsh edges to it. And I think I'm very thankful to 
I feel like younger people coming up with a movement who understand that that's not a way to build a movement. And I can feel that the culture is changing. So, um, so I think it's, to me, it's, a, it's the whole idea of mutual support. I also have a very deepening meditation practice, uh, which is where a lot of my ability to love myself comes from. Uh, I also have a lot of, I'm still dealing with pretty deep self-hatred that I've worked through, I worked through in my meditation practice. And then also I've been, um, I left a, a very long marriage of over 30 years, about two and a half years ago. Oh, wow. and it's been a really, really, really painful and hard, hard thing to do. And it's opened me up to uh, understanding my conditioning in a way that I don't think I could see before. So there's also some ways in which my, what's happening to me in my personal life is really uh, breaking me open in ways that make it easier for, for me to um, see my own racism and, and to not take it so personally. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I, I'm, uh, can't imagine that's easy to talk about in, in interviews. Um, can you share more about the, the parts of the anti-race, like of, of the racism that, that were affected by, you don't have to go, I'm not gonna ask you details about the relationship, but, but how that opened up, I'm, I'm really interested in that. Um, well, I think that there's, I think that the, I think one of the really important skills and I think that now, and I'm just speaking for myself, I'm not trying to pronounce anything to anybody, but for myself, I think that one of the really important skills for those of us who want, those of us who are white, who want to live into a racial justice commitment is being really honest with ourselves about what we don't know. And I think I've become, and I think that, that this experience of, um, of leaving uh, choosing to leave my marriage and uh, and coming up against all the the pain of of that decision that I was not expecting uh, sort of seeing the conditioning that was operating in me around my own identity as someone who was no longer married, um, which was really a surprise to me i mean I, I consider myself a deep feminist, but sort of I was married to a man. A cisgender man, so sort of seeing the the seeing and feeling how hard it was to claim myself as an unpartnered, unmarried, older woman in a culture that really normalizes partnership and marriage mm -hmm. helped me to see how deep condition our conditioning goes, yeah. and helped me to appreciate how familiar I'd become with my racist conditioning, how I wasn't taking my racist conditioning so personally, how I still was attaching some of my, some of this new, new stuff that was emerging. I was very confused about what was conditioning and what was me. So just kind of just being much more in relationship with my conditioning on a daily basis and, and in my meditation practice, trying to get underneath it. One of the things that I'm doing the work that I'm doing now is a lot, a lot of it is with white people around defining our stake in racial justice, because I feel like it's really important that we are clear that our lives are on the line. 
our souls are on the line. Our hearts and minds and humanity is on the line. It's not about helping black people or people of color. It's about helping ourselves to get free. And uh, I'm not saying that the harm that, I think white supremacy is toxic to everyone. I'm not saying it's toxic in the same way. I am saying it is very toxic to me as a white person and to all white people. It doesn't serve us really. Mm -hmm. It benefits us, but it does not serve us. Serve us. And um, Toni Morrison says this really wonderful thing about how she's, it's in an interview with Charlie Rose, or I might have referred to this in the other podcast, but she talks about how she always knew that she had, even as a child, that she had the moral high ground. And she said, you know, when the only way you can stand tall is by putting your foot on somebody else's neck, then you have a problem. And white people, you have a problem. So, you know, it is coming to grips with how any internalized superiority that we have, internalized normalcy that we have, comes at great expense to our relationship to ourself and to everybody else, whatever race people are. So I think that this experience of um, suffering and coming up against my own conditioning and uh, some of the ways in which I, I, I experienced not being seen or heard anymore by someone who had seen and heard me be before mm. and, and feeling the pain of that and going, whoa, you know, that to not be seen is so painful. And I'd been talking about it intellectually in terms of race, but to feel it, feel it throughout my body. So it's just been a, it's been a more, it's been an experience of sort of humanizing me to a much deeper level. I think I, I was kind of skirting on the, on the surface in a way that I don't think I can get away with anymore. That's so interesting because I think your your skirting on the surface is probably like a hundred billion times deeper than most other white people's. I, I know you're not going to allow you, <laughs> you won't let me get away with saying that, but but I, I see what you're saying. It's like and 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 in the training uh, I just did, um, it's like as white people we can talk about it as an almost like not an intellectual exercise, but it's like a a framework to understand something. And then, and then the black people in the training are like, and the man who lives next next door to me got pulled over and shot, you know, like it's, or, or my cousin or my brother or me. Um, it's, it's, a, it's so different when it's lived and it's so much more immediate and, and to understand that the severity and the immediacy of this is not always obvious to white people, but it is so, so very clear to people who are not white. Well, so, so another example would be feeling like, um, and you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to, it, I'm not trying to get into the story of my marriage at all. And I think we each had very good reasons for doing exactly what we did both before and after. So this is not about blame. And I remember one day feeling really, really angry and feeling like the, 
what I was being told was I'm doing the very best I can. And, and what I was feeling was it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. And then again, making the connections is like, oh, oh, okay. So it's like, like white people, we often say we're doing the very best we can. And that can be true. That's, and I think it's true. People are doing the best they can. This person I was married to is doing the best they can and it's not good enough. And what we're doing as white people, we're often doing the best we can and it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And I was in a workshop, I was facilitating a workshop the other day and a, a wonderful, um, another facilitator, we weren't working together, but she was attending a woman named Tammy Fort Logan uh, from Asheville, North Carolina. When I said that, she said, and, and we just have to keep on going anyway. She's African-American. And so she was really, you know, supporting me and pushing me to go, yes, that you, you may not, you may be doing the best you can. It may not be good enough and you just have to keep going anyway. And all of, you know, those things are true. So um, sort of sitting in the messiness of that. Yeah. It sounds like it built your resilience around race. Yes, it's built resilience around everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's always an interesting topic: white resilience versus black resilience, uh, and and how white white folks tend to not have much of it in terms uh, surrounding race, at least. Yes. Um, white fragility is a real thing. Yeah. Um, what are you doing currently? Like how, what does your, your day-to-day -day look like in terms of your, of your um, living into your racial justice commitment? So what I, what I do for my work is I work with a number of different colleagues, mostly with uh, faculty actually, with faculty here. I'm, I live in Hillsborough, which is outside of Durham, which is where Duke University is. So I co-facilitate a program with a, a brilliant colleague named Krista Robinson Lyles, and we work with faculty at Duke over, we, we do both a year long program and we do some four part series with different departments. And we also run that same program in a, at a college in South Carolina called Walford College. And so that's kind of this, the structured work that I do. And then I am spending more and more time working on the website and, and trying to be available because the, because the article has such currency right now, if I could, if, if I can be helpful in talking with people about that, then I do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what advice do you have for, and again, I hate to center white people, but I think it's important because there's not a lot of people like you in the world doing the work that you do. What advice do you have for white people who are looking, who are in the space or want to get more active? Not like, well, books to read, but what's the, what's the way, and you may have already done this because you've given me this advice, telling me all those wonderful things that you learned, but what are some advice on, on the best ways to show up or, or things to avoid? And you, yeah, that's a pretty broad question. Yeah. I think I define, I've come to define action very broadly. I think there are lots of ways for people to take action, um, including childcare, including providing food, providing nurture, providing back rubs, mm -hmm. you know, stuffing envelopes, leading, facilitating. There's all kinds of ways ways to to show up, and and part of it is to is to find find your people and. By that, I just mean find the people who give you energy, who see you, who you see, who help you to grow. 
and you know the the organization I'm most associated with is showing up for racial justice. So I'm associated with the local chapter, and I do some work with the national organization, and that's a group that I really. Um, the mission is to organize white people to show up for racial justice. It's not an organization just for white people, and the mission is to organize white people to show up for racial justice. And they have chapters all over the country. They were really active along with a lot of other incredible groups in the Georgia elections. So, um, so find find a organization either local, somewhere near you, so that you can be in community with other people. I think the biggest the biggest danger that we have, those of us who are white, is this impulse to go in and save the day on our own without accountability or relationship or support, thinking that that's, that's the responsible thing to do. And then we cause a lot of harm because we haven't checked in. We haven't thought about the consequences that uh, are going to result as, as, as we go in to save the day. We haven't made sure we have built trust in the ways that we need to. So uh, my main advice is avoid doing anything alone. Find your people, uh, get, get in community, learn to develop. We need to learn to develop our collective impulse. And um, yeah, and then find something that, that makes your heart, heart sing. For a long time, I did, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to turn 69 in a few weeks. I'm, I've been in the world a long time. And, and in the early days of my activism, I was very dutiful. I was very like, I'm going to do my duty. And uh, it was a long time before I, I actually allowed myself to think like, what brings me joy in this work? And I, it's okay for me to follow the joy. Um, so, so I think it's important to identify because we're, we're in the movement for our, a lifetime, I would hope. And so we need to find the things that bring us joy and, and encourage us to grow. I love that finding the joy. And I feel like that's so, it, it, I've experienced that like, how can I possibly let myself feel joy with all these things going on in the world right now? And it's a horrible way to live. You know, it's really, but it, to, to, when it feels internally wrong to feel joy because of all the pain that's out there, that's, I got to fix that, you know? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, the, you, we're going to let them rob us, rob us of joy too. That doesn't right. make sense at all. You know, it's like, no, we, we're going to claim every, everything, everything that they want to take from us, we are going to claim. And that includes joy. Yeah. What, what kind of meditation do you do? How did you get into meditation? I'm, I'm a meditation teacher myself, so I've, I've been oh. practicing since 2011, so it's been 10 years. What, how did you get into meditation? And uh, Well, it's, in, it's interesting. Before, um, when I was still in my marriage, I, I had all this list of things that I wished I did, like I wish I would eat better and take exercise daily and meditate, and, and I it just didn't have the discipline to do them. And then once I left and the suffering started, I had to do them if I wanted to make it through the day. So um, I walk regularly now and I meditate regularly. I am a member of the Bhumaspara Sangha that's led by Lama Rod Owens. And so um, I'm sort of guided by that kind of meditation. But mo most, and mostly what I do is just, I have a very, I have a chair and I just sit in my chair for as long as I can in the morning and try and settle my body. And then if if things come up that where I can find myself about to enter into a fear, I can feel the fear rising. I'll, if I can, I'll go and sit in the chair. And it's where I get a lot of my, um, if I can just really relax, I, I've learned to sit with a pad because I'll just be sitting there and then things will occur to me um, 
that will come through me in the form of like advice. Like here's, here's, here's something that I was doing this facilitation the other day. I didn't do a particularly good job and I was feeling, having feelings about that. So one of the things about, one of the reasons I refuse to take on the mantle of being better than other white people is because it's a lot of pressure. Mm. And it's a lot, you know, I don't want that kind of pressure. I don't want to ever um, go back, which I, I was there once, but I go back to this place where I feel like I'm demonstrating or proving that I'm one of the good white ones and not where I'm better than other white people. It's not a place that's fun to be. There's way too much, it, 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 once we enter into that space, it, it makes it really hard to admit when we've made a mistake or when we need when we need help. And so after the workshop was over, and as I was meditating, what came to me was, you know, reach out for help. And so I so I did. And um, yeah, that's beautiful. Did you did you? find yourself, because I have tried and not done very well with mindfulness type meditation, although I find it very beneficial. It's just very hard for me. And so the type that I do is more similar to transcendental meditation, um, although I didn't learn from them. Um, did you find it hard when you first got started to do it? Or it sounds like you... Well, I mean, I don't think I'm following any particular... Um, I'm not following up. Mostly I just sit and just try and be quiet. Um, that makes people want to bang their head against the wall though. Did you, did you have to go through a phase with that or it just, it, it kind of took I mean, it's, it's, it's day to day. Some days I can, some days it's just bliss and some days it's like, okay, I'm done now after five minutes. And yeah, it's just, I think I've been doing it long enough now that I have patience for whatever arises and I try and keep sitting even when I want to get up. And then if I, I don't, I'm not someone, I've kind of, I don't want to say I've let go, but I'm, I'm cl close to really letting go of anything that smacks of you should. Because mm. I don't trust, I don't trust the shoulds. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a nice place. Let me know when you get to that place yeah. where you let go. I shouldn't claim it. I shouldn't claim it. I'm, I'm, but I'm getting, I'm closer than I've ever been. Yeah, that's lovely. That's lovely. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a formerly practicing physician. So all, all we ever try to do is control things. I think all the symptoms are written about uh, medical training as well. So, um, well, that's so the, I think that's the other benefit of, of suffering, if I can say that. I mean, and again, my suffering, it's just, it's very, I'm not comparing my suffering to anybody else's. It's very personal. It's very contained. Um, but a benefit of it for me has been just having to let go of any illusion that I'm in control of anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, once you do surrender, you can see that things actually carry on without you having to control things and it can be quite lovely. Yes. Yes. But then needing to learn that for me, at least like needing to learn that lesson over and over again, um, as time goes on, it can feel so liberating and then I'll forget it six minutes later, um, about the surrender part. Who who are the who are the like three people you think people should read or follow um, that you're really into right now? And this isn't going to be an, obviously an exhaustive list because you've worked with incredible people, but who's who's lighting you up right now in terms of who you're interacting with or learning from? Um, well, I get. Yeah, I get, um, so I'm going to call out 
and he hasn't written any books. He's on Facebook and his posts are profound and everything he writes just blows my mind. His name is Scott Nagakawa and he lives in Portland, Oregon. So that's somebody who really influences the way that I think. Um, Lana Rod Owen's book, Love and Rage is something that, um, he has a number of books, but that's his latest one. And I think it's really, really, really good book about anger, about love, about the hurt under the anger, about all the things that we can do about our conditioned, our conditioning, really, really good book. Um, My Grandmother's Hands has been a big influence, sort of the somatics and body part of, of this work. There's so much, I mean, there's, there's too much, there's so much out there now. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to pick any one thing. There's a, there's a, I feel like I have a long list of books that I want to read that are on my shelf that I haven't even gotten to yet. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's perfect. That's great. And my grandmother's hand is so good. I'm, I'm myself here, very consumed with learning more about trauma and, and the way that it affects all bodies um, and how it's perpetuated and uh, particularly in healthcare um, and healthcare training and that's consuming my brain right now. So have you done trauma training? Like is part of the work you do trauma? Not, not, not in any kind of trained way, you know, just partnering with Michelle knowing what, you know, learning from her, understanding the, the little bit I do about the relationship of, Racism, that racism is trauma. Yeah. It's not, I mean, I'm learning. I've taken, I've gone to some generative somatics training and I've, so I'm familiar with it conceptually. I'm familiar with how stuff shows up in my body and I'm not in any way well grounded in it or well-versed in it beyond that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important though. I think it's really important. It's right now feeling to me, it's like everything, you know? It's just feeling like it's the basis of everything. and it feels hope it's very depressing but it also feels hopeful that and that if we can start to heal those things then we stop the cycle um how can people follow you so your website is up and coming um are there are you on on social media are there can people like work with you individually uh so i have a facebook i'm on facebook i'm on instagram i don't post i'm not i'm not someone uh, I'm a collage artist, so if you go to my Facebook or Instagram post, you're going to see my art. That's what you're going to see. Um, and every once in a while, I'll I'll repost something brilliant that somebody has posted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I so the we have a when I was part of a training co- collaborative with Michelle, it was called Dismantling Racism Works, and we were together for about 12 years, I think. And about three or four years ago, we officially closed, and we had a closing and because we were all going in different directions. And we put all of our resources on, on the internet under uh, the website dismantlingracism.org. So if you go there, you'll find all of the resources and you can reach me, I'm the contact person through the website. And, um, and the, that website will announce when the white, white supremacy culture article website is gonna go up, which I'm hoping will be in the next two months. I'm gonna do a big launch. I'll let you know about that. I'll let people know about the launch, I'm gonna do it as a fundraiser for a couple of organizations. And so that, that's probably the best way. Definitely. I'm in LinkedIn. So it's like, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not, I used to have a Twitter account. I don't, it's just not 
where I am energetically. So yeah, you, you can find me if you need to find me. I'm sure. One way or yeah, one. yeah. Well, you were so, unusual enough that you can find me. You were so lovely and responsive when I wrote to you. However long ago um, about using your work and uh, what I'm doing. So I was like, oh, she's ready to be back. This is so exciting. She's real and accessible and she talks to people. One of the pages on the website, I'm so excited about it. It's going to be a page of all the different creative ways that people have taken the article and adapted it, revised it, focused it on a field, made zines out of it, made cards out of it. So I'm really excited about that too. Awesome. Awesome. That's really, that's so beautiful to see how, how what you've done has um, multiplied and, and yeah, gone is. out to the world. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. I, it's, it's such an honor um, and for doing all the work you do. Oh yeah. You look like you have something to. Well, I want to ask you a question. I mean, you get to ask me all these questions. Sure. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so what do you think? What are you, saying to white people right now? What do you think it's important for us to know and do and feel and be? Um, I think we need to learn. My, my approach is we're, we're told all these things that we're supposed to be doing differently, but we're not told how to all of a sudden be able to do those things mm -hmm. and uh, without shutting down or getting defensive or, or, or any of those things. And so my approach is, um, and, and my partner, Maisha and I, is let's work with the unconscious mind and let's help people learn to be learn about defensiveness and and how it all feels in the body so that we recognize when we're reacting um we learn ways to communicate we learn ways to handle ourselves in private so that when we go out into the public space that we're not consuming energy that we're giving to a space that doesn't need us but but that we um can contribute to in 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 meaningful ways doing our internal work first and, and learning how to do the external work in a healthy way. So that's, that's kind of my, my um, approach to it. Uh, and with my medical background and then the, the tapping and meditation, it sort of lent itself to that, uh, doing a lot of shadow work and um, really helping people see that the problem isn't out there. I, I think if I had to put it into one sentence, it would be the problem is not out there. It's the three fingers pointing back. And until you look at the three fingers pointing back at you and you can get outraged all you want, looking out there uh, and nothing's going to change. So that's kind of my. As a this um, workshop I did a few days ago was for a, a Presbyterian church in Asheville led by an amazing, amazing uh, white woman leader named Reverend Marsha Mount Shoup. And she writes about, um, she's got a deep racial justice commitment. She's leading really wisely and bravely her congregation and she talks about how as white people we don't we need to stop asking how can we help and ask how can we change mm, i love that i love that yeah like i am part of the problem let's just cut that out of the equation of wondering whether or not i am and just know that and then go into solving it and i think there's a lot of a lot of complex emotions go that go into this work and if you have not been required by society to develop resiliency around race. You got to learn it somehow. I don't believe it's the job of black people to teach white people how to be resilient to get resilient about race, unless they're being taught and explicitly offering that up um, and compensated. And so I'm trying to take some of that on, I suppose. Um, and uh, well, I also, I mean, I think an understanding that I would, I would, 
actually say it differently. I would say our conditioning is the problem. Mm. I don't think we're the problem. And I think that's where we get confused, you know. Yeah. It's like we, we live in this water that is teaching us every day all these things that are not, you know, that we're better, that we're normal, that we're valuable, that we're qualified, that we're, and not teaching us all in the same way. So if we're working class or poor white, we're not being taught the same things. And um, so it's just, it's so devious and it's so deep and it's, and I, to me, it becomes important to distinct, to, to make the distinction between our conditioning and who we are. Yeah. Um, and that when, when we act out of our conditioning and become a problem, we're become a problem, not just for others, but we become a problem to ourselves. And that's where the sort of this, we, we start living in such fear about who we really are and fear about, and, and such hatred, self-hatred about who we really are. Um, because we sense, we know there's a sense that something's really wrong around race and around being white, but we don't know what it is and we don't want it to be wrong. We don't want to be bad. So we defend against, it's just the layers of the layers in there are pretty. Yeah. 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 And I think that's so, uh, I, I thank you for that, for that, uh, shift, that, that mindset shift. Uh, I think that's really a, a really important point. Um, any other, do you have any other questions for me? <laughs> I have lots of questions for you. I really thank you for having me and letting me talk on and on. And I, uh, I actually have a, an appointment, so I can't stay much longer, but yeah. just, just thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. And I think the more we can, as white people, talk to each other about the work that we have to do and how we can help each other to do that and, you know, be, have each other's backs as we do that, I think, I think the better. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for sharing and for, for, um, it's so lovely to see modeled a person who is so accomplished in this space, but is still learning and, and, um, and, and acknowledging that because I think that's, that's beautiful. And I think for people to be able to see that you don't have, we don't have to have all the answers, nor, nor can we, nor should we. So, um, and definitely let me know when you given up, when you've surrendered all the, not given up, but when you've surrendered all the need to control the things, please let me know. And I want to hear how that's going. <laughs> I'm not going to it. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon. <laughs>